Hello, everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy break from work. Where, wherever this finds you, however this finds you, welcome to Lighting the Pipes. We hope you're enjoying this holiday season. And today we've got a little holiday read. Well, we call it a holiday read, but I'm not quite uh, so sure, yeah. Josh, how Christmassy it fits, really. It's about as Christmassy as Die Hard. Let's just say that. Because <laughs> well, both are set around did... Christmas time, and there is a Santa mm-hmm, Claus mm-hmm. featured in some capacity. So that's, that's about right, it, yeah. really. <laughs> and, well, there is a sense of goodwill, you know. Yes, there is a goodwill for sure. There is goodwill. We're, we're speaking of The Long Shadow by Celia Fremlin. This is a book that we added late to our reading list this year. Uh, I picked up a couple of copies of the new Faber publication, or republication, I should say, that's been made popular over here at Waterstones and other big book chains. And this Faber edition, it's kind of been pulped up with some vintage holiday decor, a bit of blood splatter on the front, but this sort of holiday cottage and white snowy scene with um, some pretty impressive quotes on the front to sell this. Uh, Ruth Rendell, Ian Rankin, uh, even the Sunday Times uh, have said good things about this text. So, Britain's Patricia Highsmith. And when I saw that, I thought, hey, you know what? I haven't read anything by Celia Fremlin. I'm pretty sure uh, my counterpart in Canada hasn't either. So I picked up a couple of copies on a whim, sent it across in snail mail, and here we are talking about it. As a surprise, last book of 2023. It is. This will be, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Britain's Patricia Highsmith is one of the blurbs. Another blurb they have here, because it describes her as the, what was the term they gave her? Um, yeah, the grandmother of psycho-domestic noir, Sunday Times. Mm. Well, I think in many ways, uh, the book itself, I think, falls into that category and how it plays out and how it's written. I can see what they mean by that blurb after reading the book, of course. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, this particular edition, the Faber and Faber edition, uh, does have a little bio on Celia Fremlin at the end. Not just a user, not that, not just your usual bio that they have, you know, on on the on the lip of the book of the back cover, which there is, but there's also a little bit of an explanation about her career. And it kind of reminded me, uh, cause she's one of those, I guess, unsung feminine heroes of the mystery genre, you know, in the same vein of like, who wrote Beast in View? Margaret Miller. Margaret Miller. That's right. Uh, sometimes I felt reading this, we were kind of experiencing what the Agatha Christie side character's perspective was uh, <laughs> in some capacity on how they talk mm-hmm. about their households and whatnot. But that said, uh, really excited to get into this w- with you. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on this book, Scott, because I found it a very interesting read, to say the least. Uh, and we'll get into our actual thoughts on what we felt about the book and and our little review, our, our, our pipes, as you will, uh, once we go through the usual rigmarole of uh, who the author was, and then uh, y- I'm sure you've got a banging summary for us. So, Yeah, and we'll we'll keep it short today. We know that the holidays are a time to be with family and friends, and while I'm sure your feet are up, everybody, and you're enjoying a cozy fireside drink, uh, a warm cup of tea, or maybe a spiced mulled wine, this episode will not be the only priority you have. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we're, we're not so foolish as to think that. So we'll keep it nice and, and, and sharp today. As Josh intimates, we'll have a little fast facts on the author, as we are wont to do. 
Then we'll transition into a summary that I've prepared before we talk about our pipes in full. So thanks very much for joining us. We hope you're having a happy time together with your friends and family. And thanks for making time for lighting the pipes during those celebrations. Yeah, let's get really straight to it, that. Josh. We do. Let's, okay. let's get straight to it. Yep. Yeah. All right. Celia Fremlin, um, the author of our story today, The Long Shadow. Uh, Celia Fremlin was born to Heaver Fremlin, a physician, and Margaret Attescott in Kingsbury, Middlesex, on the 20th of June, 1914. Uh, this was confirmed by her daughter Geraldine, despite Fremlin's own claims that she was born in County Kent, in the township of Ryarsh. Uh, Fremlin was known to embellish, so this confirmation from her daughter Geraldine is that Celia was born in Middlesex and spent her childhood in Herefordshire. Um, she had an older brother, John Fremlin, who would later become a nuclear physicist. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't really tie into thematically into our story, but I thought that was an interesting no. point. No. Uh, her education was at the University of Oxford, studying classics at Somerville College. Um, this was natural course as she was writing and reading at a very early age, particularly plays. By age 13, she had her own poems published in the Chronicle of the Berkhamsted School for Girls. In 1930, she won the school's Lady Cooper Prize for Best Original Poem. The poem was titled, When the World Has Grown Cold. Among other extracurricular accomplishments, she was voted in as president of the school's first literary and debating society. At Somerville College, where she studied the classics, she also worked as a charwoman of the school, providing her with a youthful experience of Britain's class system, something she would import mm. to her novels. She also got herself involved with the Great Observation Project, an anthropological study that gave her a deep understanding of the masses and how they worked. Fremlin had a respect for the people and was also a patriot, doing her part on the home front as an air raid warden during the Second World War. During this time, wow. she worked on a study, collaborated actually, uh, regarding women workers on the home front in factories, particularly one devoted to building radar equipment uh, during the war for the Blitz. You can see how that ties in. And in this era, in 1942, she married Ilya Goller, of whom she had three children, including Geraldine. Uh, the couple moved into a house in Hampstead, and here she began writing her first fiction novel. Uh, well, actually, short stories at first. Um, to, and she wrote these short stories to varied publications like Women's Own, uh, the very famous Punch magazine, and London Mystery magazine. Her first novel was called Hours Before Dawn. It was about a nursing mother getting entangled in something seedy, inspired by her own experiences with her own child uh, being kept up at night. Something I'm sure that you relate with. Um, it won the 19... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it did win the prestigious Edgar Award in 1956 by the mystery novel Writers of America. And this Very was cool. swiftly followed by Uncle Paul and Seven Lean Years. With her ability to blend thriller mechanics to domestic backdrops, Fremlin grew a reputation for domestic suspense. She created this unease of normally safe domestic environments. Her career was crippled in 1968 by the combined tragedies of their youngest daughter Sylvia's suicide at the age of 17, which was followed a month later with Ilya's own suicide. To detach herself yeah. from this horror, yeah, it's that's... That's just something to think about. I mean, go back to, you know, to Joyce Carol Oates' background, right? And and mm -hmm, whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting, you know, how tragedy informs writing in such a capacity. It's mm -hmm. just, but it's true. It's it's I guess that's the art of it, I it suppose. Is, uh, yeah. Um 
So to detach herself from this horror, she took up a sojourn in, G in Geneva, Switzerland, and began to write again. In 69, she published Possession, mostly because it was half done before the tragedies of 68, and this was followed by a series of short stories. Her next book was, wasn't published until 1972, and it was called Appointment with Yesterday, a story about a young woman who has changed her identity. Um, along with Hours Before Dawn, these were Fremlin's most popular works. The Long Shadow, our book in question, was published in 1974. Um, she lived on in Hampstead, marrying again in 1985 to Leslie Minchin, and the two would collaborate often. Minchin died in 1999, and Fremlin's last work was published in 1994, called King of the World. She spent the last years of her life living and reconnecting with her daughter, with her daughter Geraldine. In the end, she outlived all her children and died in 2009. In addition to Goodness her social gracious. studies... Yeah. In addition to her social studies, uh, she was a member of the Progressive League as well as EXIT, a, a pro-euthanasia and assisted suicide committee. She, in fact, assisted in the deaths of four people and was brought to litigation with her colleagues for it in 83. But the reason for the charges was due to EXIT's pamphlet, A Guide to Self-Deliverance, which was not found unlawful, mm -hmm. so it was thrown out of court. Given her mm -hmm. own experiences with suicide, <laughs> this is not surprising. Or is it? I mean... It's it's hard to mm. say because she took part in it into the self deliverance, and, as opposed to like being against it vehemently as you think she might be. But yeah, yeah. It goes to show maybe that she was very compassionate. She had a very compassionate nature. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I do think so. Very sympathetic nature, and having endured that grief and and those tragedies, perhaps she you know she was better positioned than many to. To understand mental health uh, in a way, at least that for her, translated into in, into how people who are struggling or, or or feel that they want to end their own lives should be able to do so with dignity. You know, I I don't know. It, it's like you say. It's it's a very and still is a very topical, very powerful debate, and it's it's one that always is there. Um, yeah, very very interesting. Oh, I mean, to have that as uh, as kind of backdrop to your life as a writer too, you know, uh, yeah. trauma informs trauma. It does. Yeah. And I think what's interesting too, is that this definitely provides a perspective to a character that not the suicide aspect, but just their compassion and her ability to, to look at people as they are. And as well as, um, cause you know, we have her anthropological work, but we also have just how she puts those observations in her writing. It's very clear that she does. So when, when, mm. we, when we meet a character much later in the novel, uh, the long shadow, I completely understand how she looks at that character in sympathy as opposed to scorn. And uh, in, in that sense, but we'll get into that once we get into the, mm. into the, into the perpetrators, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nice work, buddy. Uh, why don't we transition then into a plot summary I've prepared about 10 or 11 minutes long. If listeners are familiar with the story, The Long Shadow, by all means, you can meet us on the other end when we go into our pipes scoring, which is the centerpiece of our discussions. Uh, if not, however, or if you just like to sit back and get a, a reminder of the story, then here we go. The Long Shadow is a pretty unconventional crime novel, and by that I guess I mean that it just straddles genres and presents crime in an ensemble way, reminding us by the end 
culpability wears a great many costumes, and that, sometimes, pointing a finger isn't as easy as we would like it to be. Even the crime itself, around which this narrative is spun, the death of classics professor Ivor Barnicott, is suspect in the story. In a real sense, it's karma, that other k word, and not crime that brings Barnicott down. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Fremen's novel opens with Christmas approaching, and Imogen Barnicott, the professor's third wife and recently made widow, is at a party. She's the protagonist of the narrative. Some months have passed since her husband's death, and friends like Myrtle are telling her that it's time to get out and distract herself again. Grief doesn't have to be a life sentence, and she deserves a chance to start over. Others, like nosy neighbor Edith, however, cling desperately to the mores and social codes of widowhood and are encouraging Imogen to lean into her grief, for happiness now is a luxury only to be found in moments when you're not reflecting on the past or preparing for isolation. At the party, Imogen meets Terry, emphasis on his final syllable, please. Part pedant, part prat, Terry fails to inspire Imogen, and she walks home knowing that dating just isn't for her. Watch this space. It's not the last that we'll see of this odd academic figure. The truth is, though, Imogen still has work to do on and within herself, and the questions surrounding Ivor's car accident haunt her. Why did he leave his hotel in the middle of the night? From or towards what was he rushing? Though she was never a proper suspect, a period of time immediately following news of Ivor's death is unavailable to Imogen. Spent in shock, these hours are referenced enough in the rising action of the novel, and by different people, to suggest that something may be afoot. But such references come in and out of the story like damp squibs of winter light. At this early point, following Edith's party, the supporting players descend upon the stage, and Imogen's life becomes a flurry of pseudo-welcome and very unwelcome domestic distractions. Each operating from their own entitled sense of what's right for Imogen, figures from her extended family appear for Christmas. First, there's Robin, her selfish stepson, early thirties and with an eye on repurposing the home. Maybe he'll just move back for a while. Maybe he'll help his stepmom, step for short, rent out rooms. Maybe he'll just clear out his dad's manuscript. Next up is Dot, Robin's sister and Imogen's stepdaughter. Dot's in a marriage that's run its course of convenience. Things are dull, Herbert is a mess, and both of their kids are whiny and buffeted by gestures of overparenting. Until, of course, they're not parented at all. Watch this space number two. Next up is Cynthia, the late professor's second wife, who sort of fits into the family puzzle here more like an awkward cousin and confidant than really a past lover. Last to arrive is an adjunct of Robin, a student named Piggy, who enters the fray because she's not heading home for the holidays. Well, that's the pretense under which she enters their house. Watch this space one final time. Imogen is unable to start the reconstructive what-now work that she'd like to as family descends upon her. We capture most of her character in the first half of the book through glimpses of her responsibility and parenthetical voice. Snide, wry, and sharply insightful, Imogen understands that she isn't really at the center of her house guests' minds. They're all escaping their own tormented worlds, 
riding the vehicle of Ivor's death and family expectation, to tick off their own life lists, whether they see it that way or not. Strange things soon start to happen in and around the Barnacott home. First, Timmy, Dot's boy, thinks that he's seen his grandfather, sitting in his study, dressed as Santa Claus, reading his big Greek book. Next, somebody drags Ivor's old papers out of storage and tosses them upon the bed in the guest room. Then, during a walk in the park, Imogen and the kids are followed and harassed by Terry, who, angling for something, claims to know all about what she's done to Ivor, and that her secret isn't safe. Add to this a nightmarish visitor in the house who looms over Vernon in his sleep. Described more like Krampus than a human, the unwelcome guest was trying to mouth or communicate, but its message was lost on the terrified child. What remained were glimpses of horror, wet lips, a bristly face, wild hair, spittle, chaotic eyes, sharp teeth. Imogen takes the train to Twickenham to check on Dot's house in her absence, and is again intercepted by Terry, this time at the station. His threats are the same as before. How did you do it, Mrs. B? I know you fooled them, but you haven't fooled me. You'll need to fess up soon, and so on. As if this weren't enough, Ivor's unfinished book is discovered by Cynthia, organized into chapters and continued by a spectered hand. Some forgery has been committed, not to mention a break and enter. One that appeared eager to have her believe that Ivor was still alive, or one that was taking great pleasure in tormenting her household with that idea. Shortly following this, Imogen discovers a love-struck piggy in the moonlight, reaching out desperately for Ivor among the shadows in his study. Seeing Piggy in suffering confirms that Ivor had been enjoying a fling with her, too, not his first with a younger woman. Imogen recognizes this, as she herself was a younger woman. And she kind of sympathizes with Piggy's sadness. Piggy turns on Imogen, though, accusing her of killing Ivor, and her vitriol matches up in tone to the words of Terry. And at this point, the reader starts to wonder. To top it all off, the family's cat, Minos, disappears, sending Dot and the boys into a panic. It is this final event, coming so quickly on the back of Piggy's revelation, that catapults the story towards its climax. The next day, both boys go missing, and a letter postmarked from the previous day is discovered. When opened, it reads, I've taken my cat back, and tomorrow I'll come for my grandsons. And just like that, enter stage left, the final player in our drama, Lena, Ivor's first and largely forgotten wife. Long before Imogen arrived in Ivor's picture, his first wife had become a near-permanent hospital inmate. Cynthia first and Imogen next had worked their charms to isolate Lena in her maladies from her children, Dot and Robin, and now are doing the same to her grandchildren. By sheer coincidence, Lena intercepts Imogen while out looking for the boys who had got away from her. Now it takes our heroine only a few moments to realize who this older woman is, also scouring the woodland for two young boys. Lena doesn't recognize Imogen though. Why would she, having never properly met? But Imogen treads carefully accompanying this chaotic woman. She has been released from hospital, but is certainly not right. 
and as the two unlikely companions search together for the same two boys, half a lifetime of stored-up bitterness is released through Lena's confessional tale. She explains it all, in victimized tones of appeal, how she gained access to her ex-husband's house, how she tried to put things right by meeting with her grandkids in Santa disguise, the whole thing. Moreover, it was her, in a fit of obsessive passion, that chased Ivor out of the hotel in the wee hours of the morning, ushering him towards his death. Piggy and Terry had mistaken her, Lena, for her, Imogen. One Mrs. Barnacott was as good as the next for their jealousy, their rage and greed. As the recent weeks and questions of torment become more clear to Imogen during the walk with Lena, Mrs. Barnacott I grows more and more disturbed. In a panic over her boys, she finally races towards the river, expecting to meet and save her freezing grandsons, but hits the water first and disappears. Shock, overexhaustion, and chill are the official causes of Lena's death. Imogen pulled her out of the water in plenty of time to save her from drowning. The truth is an easy pill for Robin to swallow. He's happy to put the blame on the happenings and his grandmother's death on his own dead father. Dot, however, stands more contrite and feels remorse for Lena's exit. If only she'd made an effort to reach out, be less selfish, be a better daughter. Piggy, predictably, has difficulty accepting that it wasn't Imogen after all. I mean, so much of her anger was directed to her temporary landlady. Terry disappears into the ether from whence he came, and the family will return, in time, to their own grievances and demons. And, although she could, Imogen seems to harbor very little judgment towards the other women in this story, particularly Lena and Piggy. Although they played significant roles in the death of her husband, Imogen seems to view them both with sympathy, and sees herself as a victim, or potential victim, in the same line of neglect and opportunity. As the story ends, readers are left recognizing that the real perpetrator here is Ivor Barnacott himself. Serial philanderer and egomaniac, the entire drama seems caused by this one man's salacious appetites. Fremlin closes her novel, then, with a disenfranchised comment on male authority and a frankly pessimistic view of strong female characters beaten down by a world constructed against their better judgments. And so ends the twisted tale of The Long Shadow by Celia Fremlin. Great summary, as per usual, SCOTUS. So mm. now we're going into our final part of our show, which, of course, is lighting the pipes. Our pipes are is an acronym for P for principles, I for investigation, P again for perpetrator this time, E for environs, and S for supporting cast. We rank each of these out of five, and then... We just add them all up and see how it's scored. Again, I will state that sometimes th these marks can be lower or higher than we usually do expect based on our rating system. It's not 100% airtight in regard to our in regard to matching our personal feelings about the text overall. 
everyone likes a rating these days. Everyone wants their Yelp, you know? So let's just say that uh, this is the Yelp of mystery book reviews and go from there. Okay. Right. Okay. I'm not so sure I, I meet you on the line there, but I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, let's it's start very, with that. Let's... It, yeah. I need more coffee. Let's just say that. Right. Let's start with our principal. Our principal in the story is Imogen Barnicott. She's a curious one, you know. Uh, as a third wife, she's a bit more accepting of Ivor's past and, I guess, his appetites than either of his previous or current loves, although Cynthia seems to be pretty chilled out with it. I, I, I do like her parenthetical voice in the story, and that's one of the things I remember mentioning to you, Josh, earlier on as I just kind of begun the reading. I'd said this, this book is written with a really strong parenthetical voice, and I think that's a real strength of Fremlin's writing style in the book. Imogen says so much to herself. Uh, she cuts and she reads people really well. And I also think she suffers their irritations quietly and with respect, kind of like a, uh, a like a, a modesty or a, a nobility, rather. That, that sense a of being overwhelmed. A very British way of, do, of doing things. Yeah, so good one. Yeah, that, that's, that's probably yeah. it. Yeah, that, that sense of being overwhelmed by idiocy is really well presented, you know. And, and in some parts, it's done so humorously. Uh, to me, I feel like Fremlin tries to present her as, as like an archetype of, of, of abuse, almost uh, neglect in a sense, not necessarily just from her husband, but kind of abuse by others around her, like not, not physical or sexual, but instead um, think like the friendly abuse of people who think they know better than her and feel that they must swoop in and make decisions for her and uh, the, a victim of the helplessness that I guess people find themselves in when they've lost a, a family member and they are, to outward appearance, alone, you know? But unfortunately, yeah, you know, There's no animosity for her, right? By the other, no, by the other family no. members, by Dot mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Robin even. There's no animosity for her. There's not a contempt per se for her either. They seem like they do care about her and whatnot, mm -hmm. but they don't mm -hmm. see her as like a full competent person outside of herself. Like you get the opinion that even though this marriage is over, she's ready to kind of move on in her own way. She's trying to do that, but her family kind of gets in the way of that because they just want to mm -hmm. make sure everything is taken care of. And that's the way that, yeah. and that's how yeah. they'll be happy. You get all the, you get mm -hmm. all those idiosyncrasies and anxieties spilled out for you on the page. And you see that through Imogen's perspective, even though Imogen, I think, as you said, she's very modest, she's very detached from it. So we don't really get her true feelings in, in, in that sense. So as a principal, mm -hmm. we get her very biased view of everybody. We don't really get much nuance. We get some nuance, but it's always through her perspective, not through the perspective yeah. of like other characters, what, what they're thinking or feeling. We can only guess at it. And that create, and because we're stuck in that myopic, I don't want to use the word myopic, but it sounds derogatory, but that's really what it is. Uh, mm -hmm. It just gets, it just gets that feeling that, that there's like a tunnel vision where we can't quite make out other people's motives. And that helps, I think, with the writing, uh, writing of her character and the story over, as a whole in terms of creating that unease that Fremlin is mm -hmm. so good at, according to like her biographers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, according to her biographers, this is the first Fremlin book I've read, but I, I can certainly see that there is that development within her writing and her characters. Things happen, as you say, I mean, things happen to Imogen, not really because of her in this story, you know, like other characters gain advantage or kind of a foothold by being there around her. They perform a role of dutiful, caring supporters, but they're really just applying their own baggage to her situation and it's all coming out in the wash, you know? Her agency the in the story- The baggage left by Ivor, basically. Well, absolutely, yes. But her agency as a character really seems more reactive than anything else. And I guess it's acceptable for the book 
and its situation, but it is a bit underwhelming from a protagonist's point of view. You use the word yes. myopic. I don't, th- I don't think incorrectly. Like she is more of a sympathetic victim than an active hero in the story. And the purpose of the protagonist in this book really is just, just to let the ensemble around her speak and kind of dictate action. And I mean, is that a fair assessment or do you think I've missed out on some no. character strengths here? I think, no, I think you got it right on. I think there's the the nuance or the suggestion of character strengths in the writing. I find that despite, you know, being emotionally detached from these characters, it's just how I felt overall, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and particularly with the protagonist, because I felt in some way, I guess because of the expectations of the genre, I felt that maybe we're going to get, as you said, you talked about this earlier before before we started reading, will this be, or when we just started reading the book, I should say, that are we going to get sort of a beast in view situation here where yeah yeah are we is there a narrator trustworthy in, mm-hmm, in terms mm-hmm. of, of the storyline like is there more yeah. to it than meets the eye because we only see her perspective and let's just say hypothetically if imogen was somehow responsible for the death of her husband for the death of viver as you know terry and black and piggy mm-hmm. are are trying to to ascertain then you know, there's a suggestion of that in the writing, too, where I was feeling, you know, where is this going? You know, this must be going in the usual directions we think it's going because because of the genre. But that's right. Yeah, yeah. I don't think no, it's not. Yeah. I, I think I think Fremlin is enjoys writing in this in this in this kind of this sidebar of, of the of the mystery genre. But she's not writing for that genre. She's writing for herself and her own experiences and how she can somehow mm-hmm. relate her own traumas to the genre of mystery fiction, uh, it's yeah. almost like an outlet in a way, you know. That's that's a good I observation. And certainly, you're no, I think you, I think you are because your little feature on her, her remarkable life and experiences, you know, with with pain and with uh, widowhood, and I, I think I think you're onto something there. That's uh, that that certainly speaks. And ultimately, you know, like like a control kind of in an experiment. This is how Imogen operates, you know, other forces are working upon her. She's kind of struggling to find her own voice through it. Um, And the sympathies, we'll get to this, I guess, a little bit later, but the sympathies that she shows for Piggy and for Lena in the story are really curious to me. Um, But I think they're, they're linked to larger thematic purposes that Fremlin's playing with, this idea of kind of yes. women under the thumb and recognizing your place in a man's world. And it's it's really progressive from that point of view. But yeah, Imogen, the person is a bit vague, a bit ambiguous, and perhaps that's deliberate. But it, yeah, I mean, she's not she's not uninteresting. And it is fun to be behind her perspective for a lot of these character judgments as the, the different players come into the the stage play of the show, so to speak. Um, but overall, Josh, I went I went three and a half for Imogen. I was jumping between a two and a half and a three, to be honest. I was very emotionally okay. attached from her character. Yeah. And as yeah. I mentioned, like I wasn't quite sure where the story was going as I was reading it. I wasn't sure if this was going to be a farcical kind of mystery that, oh, all these, you know, these thoughts that she's having and stuff is going to be overblown in some kind of comical way. Because there was a comic attitude throughout the story, but I also felt mm-hmm. there was something sinister going on as well. But really, it was just her reacting to various domestic situations that do occur, particularly with a man like Ivor and and you know his past histories. Yeah. So yeah. all of that culminated all that culminated by the end of the story, and it made sense to me. And 
you kind of see Imogen going through like this mind palace sort of thing where she's trying to put all the clues together as she's going along. But to me, like she's only reacting to things. I never found her a proactive kind of character. So in the end, like I, I, I liked what I saw of Imogen. I wanted to know more about her, but it wasn't enough for me to be emotionally invested. Mm-hmm. So okay, fair point. I, I, yeah. I'm more than a pass with her. Like I would say a three to a three and a half is, is, is very, is good regardless, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to stick with my three because she just didn't kind of tie me in. Um, I just didn't get that sense of completeness with your character like you did. For sure. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I, and I didn't either. I just think I was a bit more generous towards her because I see her as a, Mm. as a figure in a bigger, a bigger story or that, that the author is trying to play with. But yeah, at the end of the day, we can only judge her by this. So maybe uh, it's a season of giving for me, I guess it's it's appropriate (laughs) enough. It's all right. Um, It's all right. Okay. Well, you know, uh, as for the investigation, Josh, you know, I, I enjoyed this book. I think that there is a lot to like here, particularly as I just picked it up on a whim. Um, you have to like ensembles and guessing games, right? In order to like this story. If, if you're wanting a straight ahead procedural where you get really deep into the mind, the mythos, the background of the characters, this is not the one for you. But the plot is straightforward enough and the decorations are sparse. Sometimes, you know, I felt like I was reading a game of Clue, you know, <laughs> with all these different characters and their problems and their mm. interesting little idiosyncrasies so. and, and trying to kind of figure out how it all played. The story a very abstract for me. Clue. Well, yes, <laughs> the story for me carefully woven. Revelations come at appropriate times. I think there are nice descriptive passages in here too, especially in the first half of thoughts and feelings, and then later uh, it's it's a bit more action uh, oriented. The plausible guilt is formed with Imogen's lost two days. I felt that maybe that was a little ham-fisted in there, like she cannot properly account for her actions following Ivor's death, which keeps us as a reader wondering about the Margaret Millar beast in view sort of thing, the unreliable narration and all of that. Of course, this turns out to be part of being in shock, but it works, doesn't it? It does work, even sloppily or obviously, to provide enough doubt throughout the text to keep us wondering if she had a role in his death and if the whole thing would end up like that. But, I mean, in terms of the real crimes of the book, of the investigation, Lena's breaking and entering, her theft and kidnapping, I mean, that that's it. That That's the crime of the book. There's been no murder. Terry's harassment and blackmail, but it never comes to anything. Yeah. There are a lot of assumed crimes in the book, like Imogen having traveled to the hotel to confront her husband or to murder him in the car or to throw him off the road or whatever it was assumed yes. of him. But the real crime here, as we've already, I think, intimated, it's Ivor's infidelities and that long legacy of destruction and appetite he's left in his wake. It led to the destruction yeah. of relationships, a whole lot of angry women. And he should be viewed as a perpetrator, I think, as as it's his sick behaviors that are motivation for a lot of this story's unhappiness. And keeping that in mind, you know, the blind spot of this narrative for me, and I'd be really curious to see what you think on this. The blind spot of the narrative for me is the relationship between Lena and her children, Dot and Robin. Because to me, this is the underdeveloped and accounted for territory in the text. The lack of their place in the story as children, it really hurts her characterization because we don't know a lot about why or how they became what they are. Now, this might yes. be necessary. I can hear the doubter saying this might be necessary for, for a blind spot so that Fremlin, you know, can, can use Lena as the trump card surprise in her story later on, the surprise factor. Because if Dot and Robin were talking about their first or their biological mother earlier in the text, maybe the surprise wouldn't have been there. But 
the reveal, I guess, I mean, would be less impactful, you know, but I, I do feel like, I do feel like more development, a bit more presentation on Lena could have really enriched this story. It's a strange one for me because the thing that makes the story work, ultimately that surprise coming in at the end, is also the thing that distances the reader from knowing any of these characters terribly well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Because even though, I mean, they mentioned that he was married a couple of times, but we don't really get any notion of of the first of of the mother of uh, Robin and. Uh, Sorry, the mother of Robin and Dot, because mm-hmm. it's just not planted. And, and that's what I think is missing here in the narrative is that we don't have the seeds of Lena being planted. We do get, we do know that she was a teacher and Ivor was her student, and there was definitely a power dynamic switch from. Yes, like she was sort of like I guess the succubus that brought in the the mm-hmm. you know brought in the virgin, so to speak, and then we have a complete reversal where where Ivor gains control of that dynamic afterwards because mm-hmm. of how much, um, because of how much, uh, Lilina loved her, uh, sorry, loved him, yeah. you know, and, and maybe that could explain for how she didn't really care about her kids or children very much. And they ended up the way that they did because she mm-hmm. was too obsessed with her, with, she didn't want to have any, she almost like distanced herself from her kids even. And they, and they of course responded to that distancing, with the same response, right? Like if you're not going to show love and affection to your children and be just be obsessed with your husband, then the children are going to respond later in life, you know, to, to that neglect, to, to that emotional n- neglect. And that kind of explains Dot and Robin as characters, if you ask me, and explains especially Dot and uh, uh, Herbert's marriage too. Well, that's a good point, but I'm not so sure how justified or how laid out that is in the text that Lena was, I mean, she was sick and she was hospitalized a lot. No, I don't I'm, know I'm, how I'm neglectful try- she was. That's what I'm trying to say here is, is that I'm putting these things together myself based on what oh, I know yes, psychology yes, yes. Yeah. And, and my own yeah. inferences yeah. about the writing that I'm being prodded along with. And mm-hmm, I found mm-hmm. that I was missing that nuance and I had to kind of put that together myself for me to, for make, to make things connect. And that's what yeah, I think okay. is kind of missing from the writing is like, it's the characterization. It's too minimalist to be subtle and there's mm. nuances in there, but I feel like none of them offered me emotional investment into the story because I was trying mm-hmm. to figure out what was going on at the same time. And I wasn't sure if I could trust the narrator because Fremlin obviously is playing in this genre. Mm-hmm. Like you get the feeling that, you know, that feeling of unease and tenseness throughout the story partly because of Fremlin's writing and partly because of genre literacy and the expectations that comes from that. You know, after the reveal, the, the Lena reveal, the nighttime scares from the wizard in the house, you know, the Santa mm-hmm. Claus, uh, it all seems to be too convenient to tie up loose ends. And I find it's almost laughable in, in, in some sense. I don't know. Yeah. I just found yeah. like I was, I thought I was being tugged back and forth with this story. Uh, it's, mm. it's, Yeah. Well, I wonder, that's, Josh, you talked about analyzing and, 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 and psychoanalyzing, and I don't want to project, but I, that's tough to do when you're reading stories after they've been written. But I feel, especially ones that are like 65 years old, but I, I do feel like Fremlin is tapping into something important here about gender roles with the vacancy in these characters and social norms, I guess. Like, just think of it, right? Failed relationships, imprisoned women, rights of entitlement. They are absolutely swirling furiously around this story. But how deliberate yes. are they? And what sort of philosophy, if any, do you think is behind this narrative? Or is it just like you say, you don't want to give up your trump card, knowing that you could bring a first wife in here as the kidnapper 
as the sympathetic, neglected, sick, old, older woman that's kind of been forgotten about. Like, is, is that just a play, like a card, as I say, or is it something that is linked to a philosophy that Fremlin is really curious in exploring? I, I think Fremlin's strength lies in how she reveals the frail bonds of the family dynamic. Like, she understands the familiar relationships and how fragile and yet how strong they can be, despite people not really loving each other per se. Mm -hmm. There's something very mm -hmm. raw about it. And I think as a writer, she connects to that very well, the, the dynamics of family life and of those interrelationships that are going on and how it can tie to her own anxieties and our worst fears and, and whatnot. And even though if a person was emotionally abusive, the lack of that person in your life can also have an incredible effect on you because you're still, mm -hmm. you're still tied to that original Adonis, I guess, of Ivor uh, mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. both, for both in their own ways. You have the most recent wife being the, being the widow, um, Imogen, and then how she's responding to Ivor's death. Then you had Cynthia, who wants who is who wants to desperately be back on his pantheon, right? And that's yeah. why she's trying to. That's why she reached out to Imogen and and is now in her house. Uh, <laughs> and then you have Lina, who also is trying to get back what she lost in her own way. So the, the specter of Ivor haunts the whole story, and I think that was done very well on an yeah. on an emotional yeah. level. But I think the way that Fremlin writes, even though she brings up these fragile bonds and, and um, to make us understand them and, and believe them quite well. I think that it's that sort of anthropological survey uh, detach of de that, that detachment. I find it kind of like, it's it just really, I couldn't emotionally connect to the story. Mm -hmm. And I think this mm -hmm. is the difference between me and you on it. I think for some reason I, and I'm not, I can think of many reasons why, but I think maybe you related more to this dynamic, to these, to, you know, to these characters than, than I did. I will admit mm -hmm. fully that I had the genre expectations when I was reading this book. So, and I just found like, I, I had a feeling halfway through that this was going to be some reveal at the very end where, mm -hmm. you know, it's just yeah. going to all make yeah. sense. And, but it's, it's, but it's not going to really amount to nothing. So even mm -hmm. though like there were scenes where like when the boys disappeared and whatnot, and I was kind of, there was this tension created. I just, at the back of my mind, maybe cynically, I was just going, this is all going this is all going to be resolved in some fashion. It just doesn't feel the right tone for something terrible mm -hmm. to happen. And I had a read yeah, her bio. Not, not with so these little I, kids. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The whole like scent and the whole thing, the, the whole, there was just some stuff that I found that just didn't work with the storytelling. Like the, 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 the late in the study and her hiding behind the window, the curtain on the window <laughs> and mm -hmm. people coming into the room and, and, and like the Santa Claus at night and whatnot standing over. There were just things I felt that they were just, there's too many thriller tropes in this that I just couldn't just, I couldn't buy it. I knew that it would be something very domestic in the end that would explain mm -hmm. everything. And mm -hmm. well, I, I can appreciate yeah. how it unfolded, but I just wasn't very entertained by the story. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, I went for yeah. three and a half for the investigation. I did find it a wee bit more entertaining, but um, this is, this is interesting. Did you pass it? Did you pass it? I did. I gave it a three. You on gave the it strength a three, of, okay, right. uh, of the writing alone, not mm -hmm. the narrative yeah, per se, yeah. but the writing alone. Fair enough. Uh, and that is part uh, of our investigation, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. So I gave it a three. Okay. Right. Well, in terms of perpetrators, I mean, again, as we've already said, 
uh, Ivor is really the perpetrator here because his haunting. Huh. That's true. I mean, his haunting of the story, his fallout really has caused all of these other women to be unhappy and twisted in their own ways. Uh, Lena, of course, directly, I mean, she's mentally unstable and she needs care, but she's also a a pseudo sympathetic figure. She seems to know what she's done is wrong towards the end, uh, even if it's just in a flash. I mean, she has bitter envy over how her family, especially her kids, have abandoned her. But she she has to recognize that that's part of her husband's doing or her ex-husband's doing as well, right? She sneaks into the house, you know, terrifies the kids, steals the cat, and finally takes the boys. Um, I like this quote, though, and I wanted to share this quote with you. Because I think think it's uh, emblematic of some of the nicer passages of writing. The catalogue of disappointment spanning more than a quarter century seemed as if it might go on forever as they plodded forward under the moon. You know, and it is a catalogue of disappointment that she and the other women are kind of bringing to the table here in the book. I really like that metaphor because it is kind of like, okay, page 10, when my husband did this, let's go to the index, right? Okay, page 35, when my husband did this, when my kids did that. Like, it really paints Lena at least she really paints a bleak view of what domestically a woman a mother a, a carer a lover could turn into and i think that there's a real humanity to that that does touch the reader uh, if the reader is responsive to at least that much she feels and is correct to a degree forgotten and victimized you know but she's also manic uh, some would say maniac so how i don't know how sure like we're we're supposed to sympathize like she would have been viewed sympathetically, but how much? Would she have been more of a trope, a crazy first wife that's just come back to be crazy in the story? Like, how did Fremlin intend her to be viewed? There's such a mosaic I mean, of female they... characters in this story. Yeah. Like, all of them all of them seem to be trapped in some way, all except for Edith. But I just I wonder, like, what's Fremlin's intention with her as a perpetrator? Or maybe 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 I she doesn't she, have one. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's just I need a baddie in the story. So the first wife's the baddie. I don't want to keep projecting and making something there if you don't think there is. But I can't help but feel, given her background now that you've shared with us in the fast facts, that there's not something uh, sociological, uh, you know, feministic about yeah. about it all. Well, she was writing this story in the in the in the, in the early seventies, uh, Fremlin. So back mm-hmm. since that since that time, there's been developments in you know in psychiatry and uh, dealing with you know PTSD and and uh, stress as well, like mental illnesses. And it's clear that you know back in the 1950s, this is someone who would get electroshock therapy. You know what I mean? This is someone who would be put away for being a nuisance. Like that's what they did with women who had brain fever on the span that Lena had. Hysteria and all the rest of it. Hysteria. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. that was still done in the 50s at that time because it just wasn't proper to to act this Mm -hmm. way, the way that Mm -hmm. she did. And I'm thinking if she did get captured, there were, I, I feel bad. I would feel bad for her if, if, if she didn't die, you know, what might've happened to her afterwards. But, Mm. um, so there is that. Did you ever get the feeling that uh, I did like how Fremlin made it so that Lena did not know who Imogen was? Yeah. You know, that was interesting. Yeah. But do you think there was a part of Lena who might've guessed that she was her? Oh, I just wonder. Yeah. It seems, it seems unrealistic that she would be in the house and not have had a chance to look at her. Do you know what I mean? 
But yes. maybe she is so divided in mind and so very tunnel focused on, you know, getting the kids, getting the cat, getting the whatever, that she didn't really know. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird one, isn't and, it? And, and you could argue, too, that the loss of the boys, because she's looking for the boys, right? That could have mm-hmm. detached mm-hmm. her from the situation. Yeah, um, yeah totally. In a sense, where, where she sees this, this other woman come by and she needs help to get her through the next couple of steps. So, therefore, yeah, yeah. when she sees Imogen, she automatically creates what, what she wants Imogen to be, just a stranger, mm-hmm. a helpful stranger. You know, and yeah, and that's how yeah. she gets, and that that's how she processes it, and she or mm-hmm. and that makes her oblivious to what Imogen really is in this sense, is which is her nemesis, um, mm-hmm. because because Fremlin obviously is creating that tension, because like is Lena going to snap and kill or try to kill Imogen or something? Like, is there going to be some sort of like standoff between the two women at the lake on the ice or something? Is there going to be something you know? Pfft, uh, something tropey in terms of the of the mystery genre, the thriller genre yeah. uh, that we're go- that's going to play out here. But instead, it plays mm-hmm. out in a very unmystery, almost deconstruct yeah. deconstructionist idea of the mystery novel by placing it in this domestic setting. You get a much more realistic encounter between these two women, and I think this is a way of Fremlin addressing it. It's, it's interesting mm-hmm. as like when I read when I read this book, I was emotionally detached. But now that I'm talking about it with someone else, like uh, the story, I'm kind of seeing the merits of certain things that just really didn't impress me at first, uh, because mm-hmm. I'm talking about it now, which is kind of yeah. interesting. But um, mm. yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think it's it's natural to to. I mean, it, it it's absolutely natural to be emotionally uninvested in something, but still recognize what's going on. Like that that doesn't really yes. take away from its merit. It just takes away from the entertainment value of the read. Like. You can respect yes. books without necessarily, you know, oh. cheering or campaigning for them, right? Like, this is a good example, perhaps, of a book that I'll probably not read again, but I know there's an interesting things going on here, because there is a lot going on here about mental health, writing in the 1970s, as you say, and gender roles. There's a lot of patriarchal questioning going on in here, challenging going on in here. I mean, Piggy, she's a lesser villain, just an obsessed student who mistook Lena for Imogen and was compelled to... Uh, take revenge on her for killing her lover. Um, she used her friendship with Robin to get into Imogen's home. It's just still a little bit of willingness there in that part of the story for me. But you know, she's yeah, she's reluctant to accept got, the truth. At, I felt that was a bit ham-fisted by Fremlin in the sense where she had to kind of make because yeah. Robin comes off as your typical like young. He just had he just had suspect written all over him, and I think there was even hinting of reasons why he hated his father. Was his father abusive mm-hmm. to him in the past, and this was his way of getting mm-hmm. back with the monster? Where we're going to learn more about Ivor and how terrible he was, and like th- that that still left into ambiguity about the relationship between Robin and his father and why he was so That's anti right. his yeah. father. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. very much he's also very similar to his father in terms of ego and cruelty as well. So. Oh, very much so. Yeah, he's he's very very self centered. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So we we got we got Piggy there. Um, there is a cool thing about Piggy though, and it, it kind of links to Imogen's sympathy for her uh, when she sees her in the moonlight in the study, and then again at the end when Im- when Piggy is is not really wanting because it doesn't fit her whole it doesn't fit her vision of things. She's not wanting, or she is at least is slow to admit that she made the mistake with Mrs. Barnicott, thinking it was Imogen instead of, you know, the first one. Mm. But there's this great quote here I I wanted to share with you. Imogen could only hope for the girl's own sake that she would never find out who it was. 
that being the girl who was on the road distracting the driver. A frantic, love-crazed teenager, soaked with rain, wildly gesticulating from the dark verge of the motorway, her pale, bedraggled hair falling like seaweed across her obsessed, shining face. Such an apparition could be a little confusing to a man who is at the moment fleeing, as if for his life, from yet another obsessed, frantic, wildly gesticulating woman. And that quotation, I think, it, it really stood out to me because it hints at just how dependent women have become on love from men, attention from men. And I cannot, knowing the anthropological links, knowing the sociological push, I can't distance a quote like that from my belief that she has some impetus here to to promote the female characters uh, towards change and at least the readers towards some sort of female change. Like, let's move away from this desperate clinging that we're coming out of conservative America, conservative Britain. Let's come out of this desperate clinging to a man and what a man can do for you. Because look at all the women who are ruined by men in this story, you know? I f- and, I f- and I do find it fa- odd that Imogen isn't more mad about Piggy. Obviously, she's mature and insightful enough to not get raging mad at her because she knows her husband was a creep and a philanderer. Mm-hmm. But she she does understand better than the others that Piggy led him to his death, at least partly, you know? I, I don't know. It's true. And and then and then also like my final point on 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 this because I'm kind of going on about it. But isn't it interesting that only Terry, the male figure, is drawn as a total villain in this story? Like there's not much roundness to him at all. He's just pure bad. He meets Imogen. He sees the opportunity through the conversation yes. at the party, and knowing from the media that she suffered this period of lost time, he decides to just prey on that using Piggy. To, to benefit himself through blackmail. And he's the only character in this story who I would describe as, except for the boys, but they're not really characters, as just totally flat. Like there's no dimension to him. He's just bad. And he disappears what, what, into what the about ether. Herberts? Herberts, I don't know. He's bad, is he? He's just a bit of a goof, a bit of a pushover? lazy goof. Yeah, pushover. Yeah, he's, yeah. He, he's a bit of a pushover, I suppose. But it, wasn't, it was kind of suggestive that he might have been having an affair, but I don't know if that was confirmed or not. I don't know. That, yeah, but anyway, that, that's certainly what Dot, what Dot was, yeah, what Dot was worrying about in her own psychology. Um, but it's interesting though because with the whole piggy reveal, um, mm-hmm. that's when I was I was sort of emotionally connected to Imogen the most. I uh, that's when I was that's when I was connected to Imogen the most in an emotional sense because the reveal I felt sympathy. I, I shared the sympathy with Imogen. When we have the reveal of Piggy in the study, when she's watching from behind the curtain, right? And she's watching, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but by the window from behind the curtain at Piggy come in the room, because it's almost like there's a sense of, oh, it's just Piggy. And then you're like, it snaps together. And that makes total sense how yeah. Uh, yeah. Piggy appears and how Piggy fits into the story. And it also, in mm-hmm. a way, I'm thinking about it now, Robin could have very well knew who Piggy was and that, that she was... Yeah. Her, mm-hmm. She was his father's student. He was aware of what's going on. And maybe out of sympathy, you know, he wanted to bring her into the fold because he felt she deserved to be brought into the fold with her mother and his, yep. with his, with, you know, his stepmother and with his other, and with Ivor's other women, the other women in Ivor's life. And so maybe this came, this actually makes Robin more sympathetic than he lets on. And he just puts out a facade, mm. perhaps. Interesting. And, and, yeah, and interesting that connects point. well with his anger towards his father, too. Uh-huh. It does, yeah, it does. He wants well, to bring all of it, his 
he wants to bring everything to light in his own way. He's sort of like an outside arbiter, you know, in how to um, bring everything to light. Well, Josh, the picture of the crime and the criminals in the story, I think, is is textured enough and curious enough, even though the crimes themselves are a little lame, um, you know, and I think it's interesting enough. I went for a four overall. What did you do? Oh, man, we're not in the same wavelength at all with this book. Uh, That's okay, though. That's cool. I, I don't mind that. I'm trying to listen to your perspective. Yeah, I gave it a three. All right. All right. Cool. More and more, as you right. can see on my Mark Reveals, it's like Josh didn't get the mystery story he wanted from this. I was just looking at the cover, you know, A Nightmare Christmas Holiday. And then... Yeah, it isn't that. Maybe I was, <laughs> I was experiencing something. Maybe I was like, I was expecting like a murder mystery in a household, kind of like... Yeah, me too. So was I. Kind of like mm-hmm. Rianne Johnson's movie, uh, Knives Out, right? Uh, I was kind yeah. of expecting yeah. that kind of dynamic in a way, like there was a locked room old mystery feel to it with a modern sense mm-hmm. to it with maybe a feminine ang- a feminist angle. Like that's kind of what I was expecting from the story. And I got something completely different. And you told me, as soon as you read the story, put down your thoughts. And I did. But then when, after some time <laughs> and after I did my scoring, after a while, you know, things start to seep in where you get different, you get, there, there's different um, triggers that occur afterwards in your regular life that make you think about stuff that you read previously, such as this book, sure. right? Yeah. That you think about them in a different way and yeah. Yeah. it makes a bit more sense. And you know, where you were searching for nuance, but it was there all along, or you were searching for emotional investment, but it was there for you. You just didn't take it. Yeah. But and th- this know. is what's so remarkable and so very, very, exciting i find about the work that we do on the show the reading that we we do you bring you bring where you are you bring your context to a read you bring what you expect to a read i think that the marketing for this book the new faber marketing at least is really misplaced because i don't think of this i mean i do see it as psycho domestic noir i do get that but i did also buy this I, I, and especially reading about it, like you get a call about your husband and you're blamed for killing your husband. Well, that never comes back into the story after the beginning. So that all kind no. of sets you up to think you're going to deal with a murder mystery, but you're not dealing with a murder mystery. The guy was in a car accident and it's pretty clear that the only mystery we need to solve isn't who did it, but instead who's doing the little things around the house. That's the mystery we're left with. So I think it is underwhelming from a marketing point of view. I think there's a bit of a bait and switch going on here from the guys at, and the girls at Faber. I think they're trying to get us to pick up the book, buy the book, which I did, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and, and, then, and then talk about it. Uh, and, uh, but we get something a little bit different than what we think. I guess... This conversation today is is just, yeah, it's just going on to say that I enjoyed a little more what Fremlin was trying to do with it than you. But let's not let's not call it anything else. You can't make a book that you didn't enjoy enjoyable. You can't. You can appreciate it, but you can't go back and say, oh yeah, I was really captivated by this. And I think our listeners also, you know, I think out of respect for our listeners, we should also remind them that a four that I give a perpetrator score. That's not comparing the same four to a Philip Marlowe novel or to, you know, The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. It's of this and for this story. That's how I felt. Right? Yes. But I, I hear you, man. I hear you. Very good. Let's go to environment. Okay. As we, we, we talked about, you know, the atmosphere of suspenseful unease that she creates very efficiently from the domestic drama. 
there is that. That's underlying to the whole story. And you can visualize the house and surrounding area. But in the end, you know, it feels superficial. And mm-hmm. it does. It's, it serves the story in its own way. It's, it's passable, in my opinion. But I, I don't think that's where the writing is the strongest, is, is, is in creating those, ten, those tactile environs. Because the story is much more on a mental level than it is, it is. A, physical, yeah. a physical level. In I'm a with way. you. So yeah. I, yeah. I gave it a three. I gave it a three. In okay. Terms of like- well, you got you got me beat there. I, I went for a, a two and a half, just right on the nose, okay. because oh. I felt like okay. I felt as well. Another thing I was hoping to get from this was a little bit more of the family at Christmas. I, I mean, there's no mention of the holiday season here at all. Really, Point. it's bypassed through through little things. Christmas is not a factor in the story, and thematically, there's so much you can do with what's expected and overdone and cliched with Christmas. You can drag it in. You can do interesting things with Christmas texts with Christmas feels, vibes, but there's just nothing in here Christmas-wise. So I was disappointed that, you know, there wasn't a little bit more of the seasons brought into here, either through pathetic fallacy or anything. It's just not really there. We do get snow and cold weather, but they're only present as secondary features. I didn't find anything praiseworthy of the settings here in the story. A couple of interior, like, yeah, okay, I guess the the scene of the roads and, you know, the the hallways, the corridors in the hotel, and again, Ivor's study. These things are kind of bright sparks that kind of flash occasionally in the story. Yeah. External spaces like the park, that's okay. And the walk, and but but there's nothing really that stands out here. It's ethereal. It's, it's like you say, it's, it's, it's psychology, it's baggage. That's what we're meant to concentrate on, and that's what Fremlin concentrates on. So you went three, I was just behind you with a half mark. Let's just move on to secondary characters and finish this off. I passed the secondary characters again. It's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's probably the lowest mark I've given a supporting cast. Like as I as I mentioned, Fremlin nailed the ties that bind thinly between these characters, and but we are given a biased presentation of them, and so I feel they and I feel it makes them less nuanced. It, it makes them less interesting because we're only getting we're only getting uh, Imogen's perspective on them. I wanted to learn more about them. I want to see what their eccentricities are. I wanted to basically get kind of the vitals of them as suspects in the murder mystery, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to mm-hmm. see, you know, them, how they fit in. And they were rather cookie cutter of the genre, but they, yeah. but, but, yeah. Even, but they weren't fleshed out enough to me like an Agatha Christie suspect, you know? We mm-hmm. only get like mm-hmm. the perspective of what... Uh, image it gives us of them and what she tells us how we're supposed to think of them you know or she gives us like yeah. sketches of them and we're supposed to draw our own conclusions in our own way while she's still trying to write a tense narrative and maybe a little bit a lead a le- play, play with the reader a little bit as she goes mm-hmm. yeah and i just well, found that made it a ahead. little th- made the supporting cast a little thin yeah the, the supporting cast were a little thin. Um, I tell you two characters I did like, though, because they were very opposite ends of the extreme for Imogen, weren't they? Like, I kind of liked Myrtle and Edith, I, and I liked them for what they what they were. But as as this character is, is trying to, yeah, but as she's trying to sort of negotiate the waters of post-Ivor life, right? Like, Myrtle represents that pal who wants her to get back out and meet new folk and define yourself a bit, you know, enough time has passed, blah, blah, blah. Edith, though is the righteous and de- dedicated widow who claims to know everything about widowhood. Darling Desmond. How to live. 
yeah, her darling Desmond. Like she is fiercely devoted to living out her widowhood and lifestyle. Like these two women seem to be the push-pull factors of what comes after your husband dies. And yeah, they're maybe archetypes, but Fremlin uses them in a in a humorous way, I think, to reflect on the, the pressures that are on women who need to define themselves after the loss of their husbands. You know, um, Robin and Dot. Yeah, is there a sense of self? Ver- is there a sense? Is there a sense of self? Mm-hmm. After mm-hmm. after the the male is passed, uh, the male is gone, yeah. and, the, and the wife yeah. and the widow is left. Is this is yeah. the widow just the widow of that man, or is she her own person? And that's the question that's right, she kind right. of is, yeah. is asking. For sure, uh, I think Robin and Dot, different versions of the same spoiled child that we don't really learn a lot about. We don't get a good understanding of them really because that figure of Lena and the atmosphere of his first marriage, Ivor's first marriage to her, it kind of needs to be kept hidden in order for that card to be played. And well, we've already discussed yeah. that, but Robert. Robin is, as you suggest, he is a bit more complicit in moving this plot along because he befriends Piggy, perhaps knows what she's really on about, buys her story <clears throat> and and gives her a room in the house for the holiday. You know, Imogen, though, is is kind of keen to keep her own her own sort of uh, or is, is keen to accept Robin's idea, I guess, because there's this quote where she says uh, that there's, I can't remember exact words, but like there's nothing wrong with Robin's proposal because she sees it as a really practical one. And, and it would be nice to have that uh, kind of, I don't know the exact words, but like as like a, a ghost ridden or a haunted room brought brought back to life, you know, talking about the spare room and, yeah. and how she wants to draw its teeth and kind of blunt its claws or whatever it is. And because she feels like the room, that study, the, the bedroom or the secondary rooms were all you know, there's too much of Ivor hanging around the house, and she thinks maybe uh, Robin's onto something. Cynthia, eh, she's absolutely drawn. I mean, uh, she's okay, but it doesn't do much for me. I mean, have you ever met, by the way, I was going to ask you this, have you ever met a character named Herbert in any story, book, or film that wasn't just a, a goof, just wasn't just a write-off? Like, I can only Herbert think Hoover? of Herbert in, in Shadow <laughs> of a Doubt. Well, yeah, but I can only oh, think yeah. of the Herbert and Shadow of a Doubt who kind of plays that. He, he's a goofy neighbor, but he plays that role, you know, as we uh, we see him. Oh, kinda, Hugh Cronin. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Like talking about murders yeah. and, you know, he helps save Charlie from death, I guess, at the end. But anyway, he and then there's Timmy and Vernon, and these are just annoying children. Like there's nothing really precocious about them. They're just there to be victimized like babes in the woods, you know. So, yeah, I'm I'm not far away. I, I, was I do like three. how I, I, I was at a three. I do like. I will say in terms of the writing of the supporting cast, one thing I do like is those little nuances that Fremlin does give you are are quite stunning, actually. I found the way that the way that uh, Imogen was looking at Vernon and Timmy, like you could see that this was someone seeing them as children and they behave like children. And but there was also kind of like an intelligence that they that a lot of ch- that children aren't given a lot of times because children are more intelligent mm, than you think they think they are most of the time. And I found that they just came off as real kids to me in the story more so than any other character, which oh, is wow, kind of okay. funny, I suppose. But yeah. uh, that's how I felt. Regarding <laughs> that's that's Robin, interesting though, because I found them really yeah. lame. <laughs> okay. That's all right. No worries. Uh, yeah, yeah. Talk about, going back to perpetrators a bit, talk about Terry, the blackmailer. Interesting that uh-huh. his, his his name is Terry, but it's a feminized Terry, hey? Like it's That's T- right, R- yeah. I. Terry. Yeah, Terry. Which makes you think she's going to go in for sort of like a, maybe a fae disposition to someone like him as the blackmailer, you know, which is usually the ah, case in, these, in these novels, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Then we have Robin, for example. I did like the relationship between Robin and Imogen. I felt that Robin is actually, he is fond of Imogen in, in his own way. 
because uh, she was yeah, sort of like he can't see past mother. his own nose enough to care for her really e- exactly but he is friendly with her and i think in many ways he does he's civil with her he's not like and dot is civil with imogen as well but she's also very condescending to her at the same time so mm-hmm. those these dynamics are present and, and it, it's and they're shown like you get glimpses absolutely but i just wanted to be a little more meaty in terms of the characters as much as mm-hmm. the, and that's when I'm going back to, you know, this expectation of this, what this story would be about. Like when I was just first couple of chapters, I thought this would end with like, an, with another Christmas or New Year's party at the house. And then someone yeah. would find Terry with an ax in his back in, in, in one of the rooms. And then she would get blamed <laughs> for it. And then you connect that back to Ivor. And then there would be sort of a whodunit, like who killed Terry the blackmailer, right? But mm-hmm. I don't know. You have to keep your expectations at bay sometimes because they can really affect how you absorb a story. They certainly can. And I think there's a lesson in that for all of us as we move into the new year. <laughs> That's a good one to, yeah. to end on. Josh, you like this story 14.5 out of a possible 25. And I was two points ahead of you at a 16.5. So this has been a welcome, rare sort of discussion because we did see this a little bit differently. Uh, the enjoyment factor bothered you more than it bothered me. I think, I think if we were to cut it all down to shape, I would say that I probably enjoyed it a little less than I scored it, but I appreciated it and that factored into my scoring maybe a little more than it did in yours. I do think that this is an author I'd be keen to read another one on, but I'd like to see her do something and I might be more interested in reading a book a little away from what's posited as psycho-domestic noir because I was a little let down by the marketing and the, uh, or a little miss, um, you know, I was a little bit taken for a ride, I felt, by how this book was branded. Agreed. Uh, I'm definitely, I would be interested in reading another one of her stories, uh, just on the strength of her writing alone outside of the narrative. I do feel that uh, her first novel, This Hours Before Dawn, about her as a nursing mother mm. getting, getting, getting yeah. you know, all riled up by some, by some mysterious goings on, um, which is based on her own experiences about being up with the baby late at night. I think that, that was something really cool. to check out. Yeah. It won an Edgar, so I mean, it's, mm-hmm, it's, worth, mm-hmm. it's worth checking out in the in the future and giving Fremlin another go, you know, instead of like a kind yeah. of a mid-career kind of story, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, this was truly a pickup at the bookstore. You know, I got sucked into the cover and the blurb and I went for it. You know, I didn't do any re- pre-reading, any research on it. I just thought this will be a quick read for us to add to our, our late season schedule. And I am glad we did. I am glad we did. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Having expectations and going into something is good, but sometimes mm-hmm. it can affect how you absorb it, as I was saying in regard to this book. And it's very important yeah, to, you yeah. know, like we measure expectations, but we also should accept that surprise and change will come. And, you know, you might enjoy it more so if, if you're a bit more open to that instead of being stuck on a kind of a, a narrow path, as I guess is what I'm trying mm-hmm. to what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Nice work. I couldn't have wrapped it up better myself. <laughs> um, it's nothing left, nothing You're left for us good. to do then, buddy. But say happy holidays to everybody. Yes, I think when we come back in 2024, we've got uh, a really exciting list of books that we're going to be heading through. It's it's still growing because um, we're not going to take a break for a few months yet. We'll probably take a break in the springtime. Yes. Well, uh, before we ring in the new year, uh, can you tell me 
of the books we read this year so far, and I'll just remind you of them. We did a lot of LTP noir things, but at least for the show, and we did take the first three months off in the year, so we've just been reading and recording since April this year at least. We did Triumph of the Spider Monkey. We did The Postman Always Rings Twice. We did The Riddle of the Sands. We did Beast in View. We read Vertigo. We read Five Decembers, Batman Year One, Call for the Dead, and now this, The Long Shadow. Of those texts, do you have a favorite? Oh, absolutely. It's Five Decembers. That was a great book, wasn't it? It was a really interesting read and a lot of fun talking about that one. Yeah. 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 No, I really enjoyed that book. If I were to give a runner-up in terms of the writing, I would say Beast in View, I would say, would mm. be my second favorite of, of those. Yeah, I, I might twist that around a bit, though. I might go for Riddle of the Sands as my number one, because oh, I felt like it, it I, I was an investment in language. The... Yes. It was an investment, but I did love Five Decembers as well. Great, great stories. Um, all of these are interesting in their own way, and we had fun with them. But uh, yeah, next year, 2024, should be a great year in reading. Here's to more great adventures, lighting the pipes in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Here is a 2024. May it be a prosperous and um, fortuitous year. You can catch us on the socials at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com or pipes underscore pod on Instagram. You can follow us there. Get in touch. Let us know uh, what you're reading. Let us know how you feel about this book. If you have read The Long Shadow or any of the other texts that we've gone through, then by all means, let us know your thoughts. We'd love to engage with you. Thank you for those of you who are engaging and leaving us reviews. We really appreciate that. If you like what Josh and I do here on the show, by all means, and please, we encourage you to share the show with others and leave a review for us on either Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast. It'd be really, really uh, appreciated so others like yourself can find us. And of course, we're recording this just a couple days before Christmas. We'll see what Santa brings you in terms of reading pleasure. Indeed. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs>